Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am excited to be joined today by someone whom I have followed on Twitter for quite some time and written very short messages back and forth on my Twitter for uh, less of less time. Uh, but John Monaco is joining us, soon to be Dr. John Monaco. More on that in just a minute. But he's uh, zooming in from somewhere in the greater Pittsburgh area. Uh, John is a doctoral candidate at Duquesne University. Uh, we're going to find out more from him about what exactly he is writing his dissertation on. And he's also, more importantly, a husband and father of two. And most importantly, he is an Eastern Catholic. So, John, welcome to Creedle. Excited to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I'm always delighted when I find people out there on Twitter who are actually saying good things. Uh, and your account has been one of those. <laughs> Although I notice it's it's gone more and more silent, which I don't know if that's a consequence of... Um, you know, Elon Musk's takeover. I'm just kidding. Uh, probably more consequence of you being a, a busy father of two and a, a doctoral student who has students of your own to teach and things like that. Sure, so, yeah. Uh, and it's it's probably a good thing for your overall holiness. But, um, you know, uh, I, I miss seeing some of your insights on Twitter. So, um, yeah, welcome to the show. I'm really, uh, really excited that we can have a little discussion tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. For sure. Yeah, maybe let's start there. Uh, since I mentioned you uh, as a doctoral candidate at Duquesne, what exactly are you studying? I know it's theology, but talk to me more about uh, the topic of your dissertation and some of your research interests and maybe the classes that you're you're teaching now. Sure. Uh, so to start in terms of my uh, doctoral focus, um, I've always kind of prided myself uh, as best I can as being kind of a holistic uh, well-integrated kind of figure. So I know in academia, you could always have these hyper-specialists. There's always that, you know, joke who says, oh, you know, I can't really speak about uh, Trinitarian theology in Aquinas. Uh, my focus is Christology of the 1960s. And it's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> if the Christology of the 1960s has nothing really, no real connection yeah. to that, you know, then what, That's a problem. what are we doing? Yeah. So, yeah. So in terms of, I mean, I, I, I do obviously recognize the need to have that kind of balance and that, um, but also have a need for specialization. So uh, what, what has really drawn drawn me into the theology studies and what I really like to focus on now and what will be the topic of my dissertation is uh, pretty much ecclesiology. So the study of the church, yep. uh, in particular, um, the study of the church, both like in its internal form, uh, how it's, uh, you know, the through the lives of its members, uh, also in its external form, the structure. And uh, kind of the the century, so to speak, that I'm really curious about, of course, is the 20th century, right? So, you know, we go from certain tracks on the church influenced by St. Robert Bellarmine, and then we go uh, forward and we have Lumen Gentium of Vatican II and everything in between and some stuff after. And so uh, what I'm most interested in is probably the work of Cardinal uh, uh, Charles Journet, who is uh, a Swiss cardinal, a Thomistic thinker, very, very solid, but who kind of bridged the pre-conciliar and the post-conciliar. Uh, he was famous for, for having the line, like the, the Holy Spirit is the uncreated soul of the church. And in terms of that, he, he's the first one to actually do a full-on systematic, almost like a spiritual theology of uh, the church. And so, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing the dissertation on him is because 
not a lot of people have read him. So, you know, it's, uh, there's not a lot of competition out there. You kind of carve out your own, uh, your own little niche. But the second reason is mostly because I think a lot of the hot topics today and like, what is the church? How do we reconcile post Vatican II with pre Vatican II? I think Cardinal Journey was like born in the eight, late, uh, 19th century, 1880, 1890, uh, era. Um, and then he was uh, at Vatican II, you know, he sat in on certain things, made a few speeches, and then he um, was made a cardinal by Paul VI uh, and died uh, in 1970, in the 1970s. So his life spanned that whole wow. change. So yeah. my biggest my biggest interests are ecclesiology, especially ecumenical relations between East and West, Catholic and Orthodox, um, and then also theological anthropology, like who are we in light of the Christian tradition? So those are the two classes I actually teach is one is theological views of the person, which I uh, taught in the fall, the spring I'm teaching theological ethics. Beautiful. Well, uh, I'm certainly among the subset of people that you uh, mentioned as having not read Chornet. So, um, and the name <laughs> sounds familiar to me, but I can't say definitively that I have heard of him, but given what you have described about him, it sounds like I should read, read some of his stuff. Is he fairly accessible and are there English translations of his work that are accessible? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, the yes and no. So <laughs> accessible in the sense of in the English language, there are translations. Um, I, I mean, more in the routine, sense that uh, is uh, it is it understandable at the lay level, you know, or, or do you feel like you're oh, sort of wrapped right. up? Yeah, in, uh, I, I would say so. Okay. I spoke to a Norbertine friar uh, who was responsible for his um, uh, trans translating uh, one of his massive volumes into this kind of small compendium. It's called The Theology of the Church by Ignatius Press. Okay. Uh, currently out of print, uh, but if you can find a copy, it's yeah. worth having. And then um, he also did a translation of Journey's writings on the Mass. And so what he, he, what he explained to me, he said, Journey, when he read Journey, he wanted to pray. And it wow. was that it was kind of like reading like uh, Cardinal Seurat or Pope yeah. Benedict or, or whoever. Uh, when you read them, like yes, it's like deep. It's it's very intellectual, but it's not like sterile or you know kind of dry. It's it's a very almost like mystical uh, writing or poetic. So I would say so. I would definitely uh, say read Theology of the Church if you can find a copy uh, by Ignatius Press. Um, and then any of his other writings in English. Uh, the other one last thing about Journey in terms of writings accessible um, in English, uh, some of his translations are uh, through uh, uh, what is the press? It's in the Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Oh, area. Clooney, Clooney Press. And it, yes, Clooney yeah. Press. Thank yeah. you. I don't know why that was missing. Clooney has a, a number of works okay. uh, by him, like the Wisdom of Faith. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely check them out. Yeah, I've got a few. I think I've got a few Clooney titles here on my on my uh, desk. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I do think so. I'm a convert. I didn't mention that to you uh, before we hit record, uh, John, but I am a convert. And one of the things that brought me mm. into the church, I, I, I guess, I mean, there are many things that did, uh, but one of the one of the sort of foundational streams of thought that brought me into the church was about ecclesiology. And mm. I remember reading. Um, you're probably familiar with N.T. Wright, sometimes, sometimes called Tom Wright, but he's an Anglican bishop. Um, mm -hmm. He has many, many books, and he's quite an impressive New Testament scholar who has, I think, advanced um, Pauline theology quite a bit from a Protestant perspective and done a lot to reconcile much of it, I think, even with uh, what Catholics have, have always said. But I digress. He has this book called Surprised by Hope, and it's about eschatology mm -hmm. and the end times. And 
I read that book and was really fascinated by it because as a, as a, you know, evangelical Protestant, uh, Anglican evangelical at that point, I hadn't done a whole lot of thinking about eschatology apart from like sort of dismissing like the Tim LaHaye rapture stuff, you know, it's like, that's uh, kind of left kind of goofy. Series, like yeah. who really knows what's <laughs> happening at the end. But he got me thinking more about eschatology in a, in a more systematic and organized way. And then that led me to wonder what role does the church have in all of this? What does the, what implications does the existence of the church here and now uh, as a people of God, what implications does that have for what the end times look like and how this sort of is the, perhaps the arc that, that brings in people to the, to the end. Um, and so it was that idea that was just, just a little kernel at that time in 2012 when I read that book that, that ended up bearing fruit later. And in 2015, I was received with my wife into the, into the church. But yeah, I, so I, I understand why you're, why you're studying ecclesiology. Um, Another formulation, and I'm probably not the only one who said this, but I have said previously that ecclesiology is Christology, which is soteriology. So in 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 Protestant uh, camps, many, especially Reformed Protestants, love to talk about soteriology. And soteriology is like exactly it's all comes it all comes down to soteriology because how we're saved and what justifies us and what justification is versus sanctification. All of that is really what the differences between Protestants and Catholics come down to. And uh, they're partially correct, I think, in that assessment. But um, because soteriology matters so much, uh, it, it really does, it means that we have to get that right. And ecclesiology and the way you, the way you understand the church really shapes how you understand salvation and how God, how the church mediates God's salvation to his covenant people. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's those ideas uh, in my sort of late Protestant years that ended up bringing me uh, bringing me towards Catholicism. Oh. So, yeah. So what is, what has been, um, I guess if we can just maybe peel that onion just a little bit further, since you teach your students on some of these things as well, what have been, um, what have been some of your favorite things to sort of inspire students' imaginations with, uh, with ecclesiology apart from the writings of, uh, Cardinal Journet? Right. Um, so I'd say in so far in like the teaching when speaking about the church, um, one of the things to talk about is, and one of my favorite things to, to kind of go into is, all right, like, how do we receive revelation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I give silly examples like, do, you know, did you become Christian or not Christian or whatever by direct revelation right. through, uh, you know, just like a mystical moment? Uh, or, and then we talk a little about testimony. We talk a little about um, uh, those things where it's the, uh, the reasons kind of to believe, so to speak. Um, and so one of the things that we do talk about in class when it concerns the church is, do we need a church? And if so, what is the church? And, uh, you know, who's in the church? Where is the church? Where is the church not? Mm -hmm. Uh, and kind of all these, all these kind of different topics that, that we talk about, um, in terms of that, the, the topic of the, um, uh, I think it was, I think Newman would talk about like motives of credibility. Yes. So, you know, how, you know, in more like an apologetic sense, like how do we come to knowledge of even the faith in general? You know, I, they're, they're not shocked, but I could see the brain, the, the wheels in their yeah. brain moving when I tell like, them. Wow, I the never Bible thought about it that way before. Sky. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's like, totally. So it's like the Bible didn't fall from the sky. Like who compiled it together? Like who did, you know, they, when they go from the charisma of Jesus' preaching and yes. teaching and, and witness of life to the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles, it's, you know, there's this thing like that's, yeah, yeah. They, like you mentioned earlier, the ark, you know, like almost like the new ark by which kind of we're saved yeah. and brought um, into paradise. Yes. And in that kind of same way, I, I show like the church has been in this narrative. It's just you have to open your eyes to see it. You raise a good point. I already mentioned that ecclesiology is Christology, ecclesiology is soteriology. Mm-hmm. But what you're pointing out is that ecclesiology is also epistemology, right? Because yeah. it's our it's our source yeah. of it's our source of received knowledge, and you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I've also I've talked with with Protestant friends about this same idea this this sort of this this epistemology. How do we come to know what we know, or this hermeneutic? How do mm-hmm. we accept the Bible as true? And to me, so much of Protestant Christianity would actually be it would make more sense if the epistemology. Um, was based in this sort of uh, this sort of uh, Islamic style of revelation, right? This like these scriptures mm-hmm. were found in a cave, like fully compiled. There they are. They more or less descended from on high. Uh, maybe I guess Mormons kind of have this epistemology as well, right? Like they're mm-hmm. the plates were yeah. were were revealed directly uh, to Joseph Smith. And so, if that were the case, then the claim of sola scriptura would make sense. I mean, th- there are some priors mm-hmm. to get to that point to you know, but, but if it's actually something that is just sort of given to us, uh, once and for all time by an angel messenger of God, then it makes sense. Of course, mm-hmm. Sola Scriptura, it, it's, it's gotta be in there. But if on the other hand, the, the Bible has been, um, written by human hands under divine inspiration over time and then compiled by human hands, uh, through the infallible ministry of the church, that's a very different thing entirely, Right. Um, and, and helps us understand how we do have this, uh, this understanding of authority and this hermeneutic of hermeneutic that we, that we do have as Catholic Christians. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that's a, I'm glad that you, uh, you challenge your students on that and it must be fun to see the wheels like start to turn in their heads. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, absolutely. Let's, um, let's back up a little bit. I also know that you have, you've written about this publicly, but you have spent time, two different stints in seminary. Now you're obviously a mm-hmm. You're, you're not a priest, you're a layman and father. Um, but you spent this time in seminary. And when I read your story at first, well, I mean, it still is very, very troubling, but I was just, I was really appalled uh, reading your story and, mm-hmm. and finding out what had happened, not necessarily to you. Uh, there were a few kind of, there were a few things that happened to you for sure, but it was also just, you were, you were engulfed in this, both times, this environment of absolute toxicity. And I was struck by, well, two things. One, um, how this really confirms my worst fears about the state of our seminaries and your experience, by the way, I mean, you're, people can see you, you're a young guy, <laughs> you're a younger than me. You're not like, this isn't, you didn't have this experience in 1970, right? This is like, this is very oh, recent. Yeah. This is since 2011, right? I think both of these experiences. Yeah. yeah 20, yeah, uh, 2010, 2011. Yeah. Okay. And that was the first one, right? And then the second one was 2016, mm-hmm. 14, um, 15. 14. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is recent stuff. And so these are the seminaries after they're supposed to have been cleaned up, but I've seen the movie spotlight as you probably have since you went to mm-hmm, a, a Boston mm-hmm. seminary. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you want to think, okay, 2002. Yeah, that was really bad. But, but most of that was just revealing the past abuses. And then the church finally kind of got its act together and cleaned its act up. And, uh, but no, your, your experience definitely flies in the face of that. You're a seminary student in the past decade, yeah, past 12 years. And, uh, and you've experienced some really bad stuff. So 
Can you, can you, in just like three minutes, give, give my listeners a sketch of kind of what your experience was and exactly, exactly what you saw in seminary. And I will say here, I'll I'll issue a disclaimer for parents who are listening. If you have young kids nearby, you might not, uh, you might not want to, uh, might might want to just fast forward um, maybe 10 minutes. So we're past this segment because John's going to share some stuff that might be more graphic than you want uh, young ears to hear. Yeah. And I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll, uh, be very careful yeah, thank you. in the thank wording, you. but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, so long story short, I mean, I, I did, I entered seminary when I was 17, uh, you know, my birthday's in September. So by the time August rolled around to enter the seminary, uh, I wasn't quite yet 18. Uh, so, you know, young guy, uh, went to public school all my life. Uh, so this is my first stint at a Catholic school. Uh, and I went to uh, St. Charles Borromeo in Philly. Uh, for right outside of Philly for my minor seminary. Um, and, you, you know, I would I would say that I guess the best way to describe it is kind of a, a mixed bag um, because uh, there were some quality, excellent guys there, some excellent teachers. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that there can often be t- – a culture behind the scenes. And, and so, you know, in the sixties and seventies, like a lot of people who say, well, 2002 Dallas charter, we kind of got beyond that because it was just a bunch of hippy dippy liberals in the sixties and seventies who had said, you know, uh, don't pray the rosary. That's medieval superstition. And then they did all this crazy, you know, uh, drugs, homosexual stuff, whatever. And that's not, that, that wasn't really it at all. I mean, I went to the two conservative seminaries, you know, in terms of known for the doctrinal orthodoxy. Um, in that first year of seminary, I mean, there was a mixture of a few things, right? Homesickness, uh, just kind of first time kind of being away. Because you were young. Um, you were like 17 and, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. minor seminary, you start and, you start younger, right? You start right out of high school, usually, yeah. um, maybe a couple of years of college. And, and you know, back, I mean, St. Charles Borromeo Seminary today versus when I was there in 2010, I mean, it's, it's gone through a few different rectors. It's, it's completely different now. Uh, at least that's, that's my hope. But from just basic objective features like the Aurarium, uh, it was a very close environment. Like my uncle, uh, even a priest came. Uh, so my uncle and a priest uh, came to take us out to dinner. And it was like, you know, they were like very like, you're in this community. You don't, you don't go outside. Like you don't go, we're only allowed to leave campus one day a week. And that was on Saturdays uh, for a few hours. Uh, So it was already kind of an insular environment. And this is not, I've, Um, so I was born outside of Philly, John. So I know the area I've been right by St. Charles Borromeo. This is not like, it's, it's not like in a bad town. They're not like protecting bad part of town. You're not like protecting the seminarians. Yeah. It's super nice. Super nice. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So, I mean, like it, my mom made the joke and I don't know if it's funny anymore, but <laughs> she made the joke. She said, wow, you know, they have like these like very like sharp, you know, gates, you know, kind of outside the seminary. And she's like, I don't think it's to, you know, keep people out. I think it's to keep people in. And I said, yeah, I, probably. But regardless, I mean, that, that first year, um, was and I only spent one year there formally as a seminary, and then I, I was I was transferred elsewhere. But uh, it was during that first year that you know there were a few different things like um, guys would you know like I said we were allowed out on Saturdays sometimes you know for the holidays we would have like a weekend, and there would be you know like drinking parties off campus by some of the older seminarians. Um, 
there was a seminarian who was uh, again older and he was kind of uh, coming into our rooms like late at night under the auspices of saying like, Hey, I just need to talk. I'm having doubts about my vocation. And then he, you know, he comes in the room and then asks like a lot of questions about inappropriate things about uh, kind of, you know, um, sexuality and stuff like that. So uh, a few of the guys, I mean, it was, it wasn't just me. He asked it to, but you know, he was, he was very kind of invasive, when, uh, and very touchy feely. When I read the account, it also, it seemed like there was sort of a, like a propositional element going on there when he was raising those discussions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Propositional is a, a good way to put it. It was more like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was more like he, he wasn't just curious, right? right. There, there seemed to be a kind of coming on to, yeah. so, I mean, we, we, we mentioned it to the, to the uh, Dean of students um, and in the college division and it was reported, it was towards like, I think November or whatever. So it was almost the end of the semester. They let him finish the semester and then I guess he was dismissed. Uh, so, you know, you could kind of say, well, they took action. It was, you know, a little late. I mean, you know, there were, it wasn't just me who reported that in that spring semester. So now we're talking about 2011 of that first year. Uh, there's one of those off-campus parties where an older uh, uh, seminarian, um, you know, was hosting it. It was just like a really weird kind of environment. A lot of drinking, a lot of part. And these, you know, these guys are the holy rollers. They weren't like the liberals, you yeah. know, they weren't like the ones who were, you know, peace, justice, and a rainbow flag. <laughs> they, they, these guys were, you know, very, what you'd consider you doctrinaire, know, conservative, yeah. if not traditional. Yeah. Doctrinaire. Um, but alcohol got involved. Uh, they were trying to push that on me. Um, it was, it was just a very kind of disturbing environment. Uh, and then, you know, I ended up getting groped by a guy, uh, who was, who was drunk, a fellow seminarian. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of that, I was like, get the heck out of totally, here. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was just, it was just kind of a disaster. So it was a mixture of that, uh, those kind of two experiences, but in between that, I mean, those are, you know, one in the fall, one in the spring, there's just this very repressed atmosphere. Uh, I'd say, I'd say conservative, but that kind of does a disservice to conservative. It was, it was more of just kind of almost like a cultish, uh, kind of vibe, uh, that had nothing to do with conservatism and more to do with kind of power control, um, so anyway, so th after that first year, I was able to transfer out and I finished, um, my college seminary, so to speak, uh, while at, um, Albertus Magnus college in New Haven, Connecticut. And during those years, I was doing like a quasi pastoral year or so where I would, you know, be in the parish helping out with the priest. It was a much more healthy environment, still very conservative. And I loved it. Um, but it was kind of that hands-on experience. And then, I uh, after I graduated, um, I was admitted to St. John's Seminary in Boston. And anyone who does a quick Google search will see there were a few issues there. Uh, I wasn't as repressed as an environment in terms of, you know, I was free to leave, free to take classes at like Boston U or, you know, take an elective here or there, free to, you know, walk across to the Boston College Library. Uh, but unfortunately, um, there was kind of a culture there that was more, uh, lacks in terms of you know prior to me getting there there were uh, two seminarians expelled for engaging in uh in certain behaviors uh contrary to natural law and yeah. divine law um there were other issues with uh you know priests kind of almost grooming uh now these priests have no longer there so that's you know they cleaned house 
Cardinal O'Malley ordered an investigation of the thing. There is this kind of uh, outside investigation kind of brought in. A few hiccups, you know, the the first few people he appointed had direct connections to seminary. So, wow. you know, anyone who's curious could just kind of Google John Monaco Seminary and kind of see uh, even the report uh, came back and confirmed everything I said in terms of priests, you know, getting drunk with seminarians wow. and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I wasn't the recipient of any uh, direct abuse or anything like that. Uh, but it certainly was not a conducive environment for uh, priestly formation, at least for me. I mean, um, hopefully the other seminarians, a lot of the good ones would kind of just kind of grit their teeth and just say, I just got to get through this to get to ordination, which is hardly what you want to hear, you know, for, yes. for seminary and yes. seminary formation. So in short, I mean, those two experiences uh, unfortunately happened, but, um, you know, it, I didn't affect my faith. I mean, it certainly affected my emotional kind of uh, well-being, of course, um, and certainly my optimism and outlook. But uh, regarding, you know, just my own sense of self, you know, I proceed to leave there, take the good, you know, kind of leave the past or leave the bad in the past and uh, just be able to kind of hope that no other seminarians or whatever had to deal with it. So it's kind of the short rundown. Now, you mentioned this a couple of times, but I think it bears repeating. This is not, I think it's very, it's very common and even, even tempting for people like me. I'll just use myself as an example for people like me yeah. to look at these problems and, and read about this horrific, horrific abuse, this horrific scandal and be like, here's the problem. It's these, it's these doggone theological liberals who don't take seriously the commands of Christ and his church, you know, and like the, right. a, a big part of the solution has to be, we return to the fundamentals, we return to the foundation, we return to, to true belief. And the true belief point, I think, is is true. But the problem is not just the theological liberals, right? As you pointed out, mm-hmm. that was not the issue. These were both fairly conservative. I mean, there's a spectrum, but fairly conservative seminaries. And these problems mm-hmm. are still happening there. So it's not about mm-hmm. the, the sort of right or left um, side of the theological spectrum. The takeaway there is that the fox is in the hen house, right? And so even for the traditional Catholic seminaries, the, uh, the enemy is at the gates and even within the walls, sowing havoc and doing evil and uh, tempting others often successfully to do evil as well. And so it's not just about getting our catechism right. It, it actually really is about true belief and about taking seriously the commands of Christ regardless of what you say. So it's, it's, it's not simply about getting the right words right. It's also about getting the right behavior right. And to do that, I think you need to have mm-hmm. the you need to have the belief. So my follow-on question, first, I mean, I welcome any any comment you have to what I just said, but my follow-on question to that is how did this not affect your faith? You just said that this didn't really didn't really affect your faith. But I think if I was in your shoes, especially the first time as a really young, impressionable, I can speak for myself, impressionable 17-year-old, you know, and I experienced that stuff, I'd be like, what the heck? Everything I was told about this seminary. Everything my my home yeah. pastor led me to believe when I was discerning a vocation formation with him um, is this all is this all a sham? Like here, these they're supposed to be the good guys. These are supposed to be my fathers in Christ, my brothers in Christ, and they're treating me like this. So so how did how did that yeah. how did that not uh, you know kind of rattle you a bit? I mean, it, it could just be the fact that you know I was born in '92, and by the age of ten, I was able to kind of watch the news and see. Uh, the horrors of Boston, you, got and, it, yeah. uh, you know, Cardinal Law. And so I was able to kind of make a distinction, of course, between the sinful elements of members of the church. By the way, this is a huge uh, part of Journey's, uh, of Journey's ecclesiology. Interesting. It says the church is without sin. 
and Congar, uh, one of the more progressive theologians, although probably moderate by today's standards, but uh, one of the more progressive theologians of the time, you know, they had like a friendly kind of debate in between each other and said, well, no, you, I mean, the church, yeah, of course is holy, but you know, how are you going to say that the holiness doesn't, you know, kind of pervade a little deeper? And Jornet was adamant. He said, no, no, like, you know, once you're committing kind of that, that holy, you can't be kind of saying, you can't honestly be saying that you're living in that life of grace right. that belongs to those belonging to the flock of Christ. So I think for me, having that early distinction was important, but two, I mean, I must have just, it's a great question. I must have just been so saturated with goodness and truth and beauty stemming from my childhood. I mean, uh, I recently just, you know, have been mourning the loss of sudden death of uh, the priest who I was doing pastoral years with when I was in college. I was surrounded by like, I could count like 10 priests uh, in Connecticut, where I'm from, Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, from that archdiocese that just like, whether they visit the house or whether, you know, I remember going to a priest, asking him questions about God. It was like early spiritual direction, my prayer life at like when I was like 10 years old. Right. Yeah. So it was like, I was surrounded by so, so many good things that I was actually more, um, when I experienced those things as a seminary, like I was had the, I guess the discernment to kind of say, wow, this is a bunch of nonsense. Like this isn't the Catholic church. Like, so instead of internalizing and say, Oh, makes sense. Yeah. this is a Catholic church. Like, you know, and say, okay, well now my, everything I know is wrong. It was, I was, I was so, I don't know, oversaturated with just so much beauty of the Catholic faith that when was, what was presented to me was this kind of mockery uh, I was able to see it for exactly for it was a mockery, but I guess just ultimately, I think it just comes down to just, uh, a, a gift, a grace, because I mean, I would not fault many people for, you know, through no fault of their own being kind of discouraged. I mean, that's why the whole scandal on the, the scandal that Jesus says is like, uh, you know, um, cursing those who who cause one of the little ones to stumble you know that's what a scandal is it causes us to stumble it it's a stumbling block yeah and so you know in terms of that i've just been very grateful uh to be preserved from from interior um in terms of my faith uh having that have a negative effect um i've mentioned this before on the podcast but that the words of jesus in i think it's matthew chapter 18 when he talks about causing the little ones to stumble um I realized, I don't know, five or six years ago that Jesus, when he's speaking those words, is not speaking just to the crowd generally, but he's speaking to the apostles, right? And so this is not like a general, yeah. not like a general warning to the public. He's actually warning the, right. the first bishops, the 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 first yep. guy, the first bishops of the church, like don't do this. And so um, that for me contextualized the whole abuse crisis. And I realized, oh yeah, the fox has always been in the hen house, hasn't he? Um, mm -hmm. You know, all the way back to Judas. Um, but I think you're right to, to, to point it, point it out as like a mockery. And to me, I almost think the, the mockery, cause that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, um, when, when people who are, when the clerics of the church, when the aspiring clerics, the seminarians of the church are saying all the right things, wearing all the right clothes, they're in their clerical garb and they give the homilies and then they engage in that stuff later on. Uh, they're not only complete hypocrites, but they do reveal themselves to be um, perverts. And I don't mean that in like this, the traditional colloquial sense, although, I mean, sure. I'm talking about like they're actually perverting, like they're inverting what the truth should be in order to make a mockery mm -hmm. of it. You know, if they didn't actually, 
Mm-hmm. Like, like to just walk away from the church entirely and to say this isn't for me is one thing. It's another thing to pretend that it's right. for you and then just completely invert her commands. Um, and I think there's, 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 something, there's something particularly devious about that, I think. Particularly deviant to yeah. say, yeah, I'm going to pretend, but I'm not going to. Rather than having the, the sort of conviction to say, yeah, I'm just, it's not for me. I'm just going just gonna to go kind of be a libertine and do my thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hirelings. They, they want to benefit from the system, the privileges that it offers, uh, but they don't want that interior conversion yeah. or just that, you know, the, the word for chastity from the Greek word, it actually means like this kind of total integration mm. of one's life. So it's not just, you know, living in an ordered way in terms of sexual desire, but it has to do with just this kind of uh, live, being an integral person, a person with integrity, a person that is uh, kind of um, whole you know, focus on that one thing necessary, not, you know, kind of fractured, yes. um, drawn away by all these things. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's why, it's why it's helpful to not, um, just use chastity as a replacement for abstinence, right? Like abstinence is just sort of like right. with withholding the passions and chastity is actually rightly ordering and integrating the passions. Um, mm-hmm. let's pivot gears a little bit. Um, we will probably come back to this at the very end, but let's pivot um, a bit and talk about your journey east because now you are an Eastern Catholic. I believe you're in the Ruthenian, right? Uh, correct me if that's wrong. Um, I'm actually in the Melkite. 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 Okay. Uh, I mean the same Byzantine, right? In yeah. terms of you know the but the particular church is the Melkite Greek Catholic Church. Got yeah. it. Cool. Um, so talk to me about that journey. I also know you're a Dominican layman. I forgot to mention that in the bio, but that's super interesting to me because you don't find a ton of Dominican laymans in the Eastern churches. Oh uh, no. <laughs> I uh, think so that's that's. That, as, as soon as I, uh, I think you, you mentioned that on Twitter sometime in the last like six months, I think maybe a year. And I was like, yeah, yeah. oh, that's, that's pretty cool. But, but surprising. Uh, cause I have, yeah. as my listeners know, I have a, a love for the Byzantine church since I've been attending one for the past year, almost a year and a half. Um, and I also have a huge love for the Dominicans and have, you know, contemplated becoming a third order Dominican. So uh, didn't really, didn't really know anybody who had done both of those things simultaneously, but the fact that you have is pretty cool. Uh, so maybe let's, let's talk about that. Maybe let's start with this simple question. You kind of, why, why move East? What, what drew you? Was it, is it, yeah. is it in your family way back? I mean, it sounded like you grew up Latin, right? But what ended up kind of pulling you that yeah. way? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, among the thorns, so to speak of, of that first year at St. Charles, um, when I was in seminary, uh, there was one weekend that stood out as just kind of being the, the best weekend, one of the best weekends of my life. And not just so much a weekend, but the Sunday. So usually on Sundays, we were to attend our conventual mass. In other words, our, our seminary mass, uh, you know, in our own chapel, we didn't go out to parishes, stuff like that. Only the deacons did. Uh, but one one Sunday, they called it Multicultural Sunday, uh, and that's when we were uh, just kind of from the prescriptions of the seminary, essentially sent out by class. So, you know, first years, second years, third years. Um, and so we were, you know, sent to different churches, whether of a different culture. So obviously like Korean Catholics, okay. they celebrate the Roman rite, but have the enculturation aspect, yep. uh, even like a heavily Spanish, you know, South American, um, we know the whole thing with the Amazon and the Amazonian, uh, there's still, you know, at least by, by its name, the Roman rite, but our, uh, others were sent to Ukrainian, Cyril Malabar, some of the Eastern Catholics, uh, up until that time, I didn't really know anything about Eastern Catholicism. I mean, my godfather, who's of no biological relation to me, just my mother's, uh, 
best friend to a very devout Catholic. He's actually Maronite. He's Lebanese. Uh, cool. and he was my, you know, godfather from, you know, birth. So I always kind of knew like he was like a different kind of Catholic, but like still, you know, Catholic. Yeah, right. So anyways, this son, that Sunday in question, we were, um, sent my first year class to the Armenian Catholic church. Now there's only like about six or seven Armenian. I have, Catholic a, I have a close friend who's been the on the United podcast States. who's in the Armenian church. Yeah. Oh, really? Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So there, I mean, they're uh, in, you know, if anyone's interested, they could always read about how Armenia was the first Christian uh, kingdom, so to speak. Yep. It, fascinating, ancient, ancient history. But um, anyways, we were, we were to attend there. And a lot of my, I remember a lot of my classmates were like groaning. They're like, oh, I just wish we could just stay at the seminary. Like, I don't want to do this. And me, I was like, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, I was just overjoyed. I was like, yes, out of the seminary, I could go somewhere else. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I like, I embraced it wholeheartedly. So then we get to this little church and it's just in our, in the neighborhood Winwood, and it's called St. Mark's Armenian Catholic Church. Still there today, active parish. And uh, what, when upon meeting the priest there, you know, he just kind of gave us different roles. So he said, um, you know, you hold the candle, you do this. Well, he told me to do a reading. I said, okay, you know, I completely different, right. You know? And so I said, I'm just going to just follow it, follow the gestures. And it was like, you know, when St. Paul talks about, you know, like I know a man who is in like the third heaven. Caught up to the third heavens where it's like, <laughs> I just, I was just blown away from the, even the vesting prayers yes, yes. Um, that in the, in the singing. And then they had to use the little organ in the back and then the chanting, the incense, the, the, um, the bells and stuff like that. And they called it the, the surp S O O R P Badrak, um, the, the Holy sacrifice, right? Okay. So surp, it means Holy Badrak means uh, sacrifice. And, I mean, whatever it was, an hour, 45 minutes or whatever, however long it was, I was just blown away. Like I, like after a whole year of desolation, yeah, I was just given so much comfort and consolation. It was, I mean, I could still, I get goosebumps just even thinking about it, That's you so know, cool. Um, it, there, the chanting, the, the incense, it actually felt like divine worship. There's a curtain that closes at certain points of the liturgy and where the priest essentially ascends and goes to the Holy of Holies, so to speak. And the prayers, you know, I was trying to follow along in the card and eventually I just kind of gave up and I was just like embracing it. so So after after that Sunday, you know, a lot of my, my uh, classmates were like, man, I can't wait to get back to the seminary like this, you know, this was, uh, you know, uh, a weird kind of weird, yeah, diversion. Strange, yeah. And me, I wouldn't stop talking to the priest and I, priest and I were talking, talking, he was telling me about Eastern Catholicism. I'm like, I don't really know what this is. Right. So anyways, we get back to the seminary and I spend the rest of that weekend just researching and reading and looking the library and looking at all these things on Eastern Catholicism. And of course, then I learned like most people, the Catholic church actually comprises of, yeah. you know, 24 particular churches of which the Roman Catholic church, the Latin church uh, is by far the largest, probably 97, if not more percent. Uh, and then you have a bunch of these Eastern Catholics and each with their own history, story, et cetera. So pretty much even throughout that year seminary, I would always try to sneak away to go to an Eastern church when I could. Um, even if I didn't understand the language it was in, yeah. I just knew that that liturgy was going to be something that just nourished soul. It's real special, yeah. So fast forward to my theological studies, um, or my philosophical studies when I was can, in can I Can I actually pause you? I want to come to this, but I want to just... 
share with you oh, yeah, our, yeah, yeah, our, our experience because it's very similar. I had never been to, please, I, yeah. I knew about the the Eastern Catholic churches, but only only intellectually. I had not read a ton, but had done the Wikipedia diving, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah there are yeah, 24 yeah. particular churches, yada, yada. Um, and so, and I had, I had, uh, my wife and I both had gotten into this podcast called what God is not. You may be familiar with it, but, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sister Natalia and father Michael O'Loughlin, who is a, uh, Ruthenian priest. Um, and so that was, so we had, we had had some encounter with apophatic theology through that podcast and some, some encounter with the theology of the East and really liked it. So we moved to this, this area about a year and a half ago, not quite. And we're like, we just, we gotta, we gotta swing by this, this parish. So we took all, all four kids with us just to a Sunday divine liturgy and walk in. And I mean, the whole place is just floor to ceiling um, covered in icons, just everywhere you look, there's mm-hmm. icons everywhere. And then the, um, the music starts. And of course it's all sacred chant. And then the liturgy happens and it's like, like it's just 90 minutes, you know, it's, it's mostly standing right. And 90 minutes later it's complete, but it's, it, it's like you, you enter this sort of time warp throughout and it's just the most transcendent mm-hmm. experience of worship that I think I've ever had and it was just it was mm-hmm. remarkable to be like wow this is incredible uh and a real treasure for the church to have and it's amazing that this is not a more widely known treasure because mm-hmm. um you know I'm not not criticizing uh not criticizing the rightness uh, of the Novus Ordo at all uh, a form of the liturgy which I completely accept but most in most implementations of the Novus Ordo liturgies that you see in your sort of like, you know, your, your, your nearby parish community are just downright banal compared to what happens at the smallest Byzantine church every, every Sunday, every divine mm-hmm. liturgy. It was just, I mean, it was, it was such a, it was such an explosion of, um, of, uh, of sounds and of smells with the, the incense mm-hmm. throughout and of, uh, of actions with you know, how frequently you're bowing and crossing yourself and singing. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, so we, we really, really love it. I mean, it's a, I, th- I shared with you before we start recording, it's a little bit of a drive for us, but every time we go, we're like, man, we're, we're so glad we went there. This is, this is, this is just amazing. It's so great. Mm-hmm. So completely, I, yeah, very similar experience to your own. And it has, spurred me to dive deeper as well and really contemplate like, man, maybe we should just become, maybe we should just do it. Maybe we should become Eastern, you know? Um, cause there's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot that I like about it. Yeah. So, yeah, but I, definitely. but I, yeah, but I cut you I, off uh, in your journey. So, so continue. I just want yeah, to share I mean, our it, parallel. It, it, I, I know for the sake of time, probably can't hit every point, yeah, yeah. but it should just be, I'll just mention that during my philosophical studies, so you know, do my bachelor's in philosophy and then later in theology, um, I was just always drawn to the work of uh, the church fathers and especially the Eastern fathers, um, you know, the Greek fathers, the Cappadocians. What, so uh, a lot of people, well, some people may know about this. So uh, probably one of the, the, the damaging parts of the seminary experience was I developed a very uh, kind of almost severe form of kind of OCD scrupulosity Um and actually that whole kind of notion of apophatic theology, apophatic theology, this idea that, you know, this, this intrusive thought I have, like God's this like, you know, scary big monster who's going to smite me, this and that, you know, just reading the work of Pseudo Dionysius and Aquinas and his appropriation of him, uh, the work of Nicholas of Cusa, uh, that's what I took uh, when I was um, back in 20, uh, 2015, uh, 2016, actually spring of 2016, uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm trying to think. 
I think spring of 2016. Anyway, I took that when I was in Boston and like just this apophatic uh, kind of mysteriousness of God yeah. um, that goes beyond, you know, mate- like um, conceptual ideas about him and stuff like that. So it was a mixture of that, that draw that really, I found that when I go into the divine liturgy, it's certainly not anthropocentric. It's very theocentric. It's very, as worship, all worship should be, no matter which right. Yes. Um, and ordered towards, you know, the, the praise and thanksgiving to Almighty God. And I guess what, you know, I married my wife and, and she's uh, raised uh, Melkite, you know, uh, from the Middle East. Um, and what what kind of precipitated my eventual, my change was that I started attending the Eastern churches, I mean, for several years now to the point where that felt like home. Yeah. And I realized I wanted to be under the Melkite bishops. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be under their fasts and their feasts. Yep. Uh, I didn't no longer want to be kind of this outsider looking in. Um, and I also wanted to raise my children in the, in the Greek Catholic, uh, right. Uh, so in terms of that, that's kind of, it was partly familial. So not necessarily tied to cultural, um, nor should it, you know, need to be, Yeah. but also just, you know, uh, once I kind of felt like, yeah, like I don't feel like an outsider. I don't feel like I did my first time say, wow, look at this mystical kind of experience, whatever. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic, but that's really neat to like, yeah, this is what we do. I'm like, wait, this is mine. We? Yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is yeah, who I am. That's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So yeah, there's definitely a part of me that wants that. Uh, the point about the fast and the feast though, I love so much of what the, uh, in, in my case, the Byzantine, the Ruthenian, um, uh, church does, but, uh, man, the fasts are intimidating. They're really intimidating. Um, and I'm yeah, someone who, yeah. you know, yeah. I, 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 I love food, you know, and it's, it's hard for me to be like, yeah, the great fast, bring it on. Let's just go vegan for, you know, 50, 53 days or however sure. long it is. Uh, that's a challenge for me. It really, it really is. So, oh yeah, that's not, that's not the singular issue preventing me from becoming it, but man, it is, I think about that. I'm like, it's, it's, you know, I guess, in my, in, my, in my current position, I can sort of have my cake and eat it too, which is not the right approach. I recognize that. So this is something that I need to, I need to work on. Right. But the, um, it does strike me that the Eastern churches sort of demand more of you, which I like at an, on an intellectual level, you know, but, um, yeah, the spirit yeah, is yeah. willing, but the flesh is weak is what I'm saying, John. So, right, right, right. <laughs> Trust me. I know that. <laughs> So um, I will say one yeah. thing about just one note about the fast and stuff like that. There is a nice principle in in Eastern Christianity of like economy. They call it economy or economia in Greek. This idea that um, you know a household management it roughly translates to. And in that case, like for example, if you're starting and you want to say, "Hey, I want to do this Eastern you know fast thing," you know, like your spiritual father, your pastor, whatever. Uh, they'll obviously understand like you're starting from like here and the prescriptions yeah. are here. Yeah. So they're more like, how would I put it? You know, you always hear these days about accompaniment or yeah. whatever, like, you know, but really they're true. They are truly doing that accompaniment work because they'll say something like, okay, you can't be vegan. This, this line, it's going to burn you out. You know, yeah. you just, why don't you start by doing this, 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 yeah. and like that kind of law of gradualism in the spiritual life where, you know, that, and that's found in the West too, ideally. Um, so yeah, having that kind of freedom, freedom to, to kind of work out 
uh, these spiritual ascetical practices so that they don't become kind of these idols where like, well, I got to, you know, white knuckle it yeah, for the next, yeah. you know, 40, 50 days, but rather they're kind of oriented to your own uh, room for growth, you know? Now, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I, I welcome fraternal correction for sure. But it seems to me, you mentioned the the West does have their law of gradualism. And it seems to me that that's, that's right to some extent. But I think in my limited experience, it seems like the the West falls into sort of a, a, a an error prone type of gradualism. And what I mean by that is, well, let's let's take your example of the the vegan thing is here, like the full the full prescriptions for the great fast are here, and what you can do is here. In the in the Eastern approach, it seems to me that and I, you know this this comes through loud and clear in divine liturgy, right? God is here, right? And that's just mm-hmm. that's just where God is because God is the all holy God, and we can never. Mm-hmm. We can never hope. We can never hope to be where he is apart from his infinite and abundant mercy. Um, and so, when we do, when we talk about gradualism, right? Like we're we're the little we're the little creatures down here whom God has richly mm-hmm. blessed, and we can we you know we can only do what we can. We can try our best, but we're we're still going to be like struggling on this ladder to God. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, certainly not all. But I think in some cases, maybe let's let's say many cases, I'll say many cases in the Latin rite in the West, we sort of do the opposite. And we say like, okay, God is yes, here. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> like we're gonna lower the bar. <laughs> right. And this is uh this yeah. is actually this is also why I love the Dominicans. I was talking to a Dominican who um was telling me about a frustrating experience he had with a Jesuit formator in seminary. And the Jesuit formator was um was arguing for like pastoral accompaniment and sort of allowing a couple to use, to, to contracept um, because of a complicated situation. And the, the Dominican became a Dominican, but this, at the time the seminary student was like, no, absolutely not. God gives us the grace to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the Jesuit was like, no, you know, God kind of wants us to try our best. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't think he said no like he necessarily. Jesus is like, nope. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably not exactly how it transpired, but no, I get yeah. it. <laughs> um, and then so this this seminarian then called a, called a, a faithful Jesuit mentor of his and said, you know, Father, I'm really frustrated. I had this experience in seminary. And this Jesuit said, aha, here's the problem. Um, Jesuits want to fill heaven with sinners and Dominicans want to fill the earth with saints. And so that's that's the sort of the, the the reversal of things that I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the mm-hmm. impression I that's get, the impression it, yeah. I get from Eastern theology, is that our destiny is to be saints, right? And that's what we're all mm-hmm. called to. The standards never change. Um, they they are there, and they will never change. Uh, and so, like, I guess this another example might be in um, the emphasis on mortal and venial sins in the West, and I don't think that has a mm-hmm. similar emphasis in the east not as much no. yeah and i think i think part of that might be because like if you if you sort of don't have this if you don't have as pervasive an idea of god as um at the, as the very pinnacle then you are liable to sort of fall into this this rather like juridical tendency of overvaluation of perhaps scrupulosity like you were saying you would struggle with and the east just sort of rejects that binary i think because it's, it's kind of a false binary um, we are called to complete holiness. We're going to fail at that constantly. And our loving all holy God who remains all holy and whose standards remain the same, unchanging for all time forever, 
um, loves us and has mercy on us and that, that mercy is without end. So I don't know if I'm explaining that super well, but that's been, that's been kind of my impression no, I, of both sides. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, I mean, so some would accuse the East of being like, oh, you're too transcendent. You know, you're too focused on the transfiguration, you know, like uh, I know in the liturgy, uh, you have the uh, cherubic hymn and you have the, you know, we who mystically represent yeah. the cherubim. I remember the first time I heard that I was a little annoyed because I'm like, well, why do we have to mystically represent the cherubim? Why can't the cherubim mystically represent us? But then that's subverting the entire hierarchy, right? right? By which, right. you know, we have God right. beyond all being and then, you know, the angels that worship him and stuff like that. And that kind of, you know, I remember that was really early on. I was like, you know, like, why do I have to be mystically uh, an angel, right? Yeah. And then you think of the, you know, sometimes the West overemphasizes the incarnation i don't mean in like a true theological sense what i'm saying is like god did not just become man like yes period it's right, the right. whole god became man so that man might become yes, and god. partake in divine nature yeah. and so that that kind of uh you know um uh anabapsis and the and the uh, the uh it's like this upward and downward motion you think the ladder of divine ascent i think oftentimes in the west especially in the way contemporary liturgical celebrations could be we want to make god like our our chummy you know bro right mm-hmm. like well you know the big guy upstairs he doesn't really care oh about i can't that. stand he that terminology us. yeah it's oh it's the worst it's like, well, I don't think God cares. Like just recently, I mean, I'm a diehard Eagles fan, by the way. I, I am my too. Family, oh my, my goodness, dude. We Philly. should talk about that. Oh, Go brutal, brutal. Oh my I, goodness. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm still in mourning. Oh, me it's too. It's good that Lent's here. Oh. I can, you know, just cry. Exactly. But, um, uh, there was, I was seeing like they were, they did uh, the fly Eagles fly, the fly Eagles fly like that, that theme song. They did that for the Alleluia at a parish no. in Philly. And, and of course, and so, you know, you know, in the con, this was on Twitter, of course, I saw yeah. it and everyone's like, wow, this is hilarious. No, I said, yeah, this is actually kind of like sacrilegious. Like, yeah. this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, you know, it's time to kind of grow up and, uh, you know, not commit. And everyone's like, yeah, I don't think the big guy upstairs even really cares about that. It's like, you say that to an Eastern and they're going to look at you like you have five heads. Yeah. It, Cause it's like, what do you mean? Yeah. Worship is everything. Yeah. God tells us how God wants to be worshipped. And even just referring to him as the big guy upstairs would be sacrilegious too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this idea that, well, nah, don't worry, God. And that's the thing is the law of gradualism in the East is always trying to help you make you more perfect, right? So it's always forward, never backwards. Yes. Uh, Yeah, that's that's a better way. the West. Yeah, that's a much more succinct way. Yeah, it's gradualism. It's accompaniment, but like to where? Yes. Like off a cliff? Like where where are we going? (laughs) Oh man, that's so, yeah, that's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say though. Yeah. The law of gradualism is always, always forward, never back, always up, never down. Um, there's, there's no, there's no idea of stasis. So I think sometimes my impression from like, you know, the sort of homilies I've heard in many, many a Latin rite parish has been like, Jesus, Jesus came to earth to be with you and to sort of walk with you in your life and in your pain and in your struggles. Um, and then they leave out that second part, right? Like, no, and then to lift you up again, <laughs> the son of man <laughs> right. became man so that we might become God. I think is a, is, that's the Athanasius form, formulation, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, man, we are, uh, we're past time. I, uh, I've already run over my time with you, so my apologies for that. It's an hour later for you than it is for me. Uh, so let's wrap this up. I would love to have you back on, though. This has been great. And we can uh, maybe talk yeah. about eagles, too. Um, <laughs> so let, let me end on this. All right. Uh, I told sure. you, I told you I was going to ask you a question about this, but, uh, on my podcast, uh, lots of, lots of Catholics listen and, um, they're like me and you, they are trying to find richness and truth and beauty and goodness, uh, all around them. 
I think uh, I think many of them are like me in that they sometimes struggle with the state of the church as it is today and how difficult it can be to find a faithful Catholic parish, to even find a, a faithful Catholic priest to uh, administer the sacraments, to preach a, a faithful homily that does not, you know, sprout heresy or engage in sort of, you know, flirtatious, you know, sacrilege like we were just talking about. Um and or they feel like they're being persecuted by their own bishop because their their um, bishop is suppressing the form of the liturgy that they'd like to attend, whatever. So this happens all the time. Uh, it's happening everywhere. It's becoming more and more common, and it's uh, it's sad. I hate to see it, uh, and I hate to be the one experiencing it. You, I think, are in a unique position as as having been someone who has seen um, multiple parts of the Catholic Church, not just the Roman right. Now you're uh, now you're an Easterner. But you've also been in two different seminaries, and you've experienced a lot of formation. And you said that your faith is still not still not shaken. Now, I think of, uh, what I come back to for my listeners is that so much of our our um, sort of response to all this tumult in the world, in the in the world, and especially in the church around us, has to be about personal holiness, cultivating a relationship with uh, the all holy triune God, and focusing on how we can better serve Him in holiness. So. First of all, do you have any comment on on that or additional reflections? And second of all, what does that look like for you? How have you found um, ways to cultivate and to build and to answer the um, universal call to holiness in your own life as a layman, as a father, a husband, now a, a teacher, a theologian, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, so for the first part, I would definitely uh, just mention that and this kind of, if you want to point to the Eastern Catholic Church as an example, you know, being a persecuted minority from within the church or even without the church uh, is never an excuse for for not pursuing holiness. Um, you know, God's grace is sufficient, and that's not just a pithy saying. Uh, it is, it's just simply true, right? And so when we think about it and you think about the history of the Eastern churches persecuted both by, you know, Orthodox, uh, you know, the mother churches, so to speak, uh, that they had, or just even when they came to the West and, you know, they were forcibly Latinized in some, in some uh, respects, um, what it ultimately kind of comes down to is like, you know, we are, we are given this great gift of faith and we are given a world to, to live out that faith in. And, you know, you hear the whole in James, the letter of James, you know, faith without works is, you know, dead faith type of thing is that uh, we're, we're never short of those opportunities just in the day to day. When I think of the Eastern churches, I just think of, of that. I think of, you know, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic church was under, underneath, it was underground during the Soviet uh, oppression. And only, you know, later in, in the 20th century was it even allowed legality. But when it sprung up, there are already people living the faith in their homes quietly, uh, you know, as they're able to in their daily circumstances. So uh, that's one thing I'd say. And then um, just to, just to the second point, I mean, uh, one thing that I've just found really comforting in terms of the Eastern uh, liturgies and stuff like that, and just Eastern practice is, the integration of uh, kind of the Christian life. So prayer, fasting, almsgiving, especially as Lent coming up, um, that we don't just pray just because we have to like just check off a box or I just got to get my yeah. rosary in. Uh, but And we don't fast just to be like, you know, cooler than other people or to lose weight or whatever. We don't give Exodus alms, 90. You know, so that we feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have a few few thoughts on that, but <laughs> for another time. But one, one thing I'll say is just, 
I would tell people, and I, I'm this is advice I have to always give myself, like lean into that liturgical season. Like when it's a time to feast, it's a time to feast. Yeah. Don't, you know, eat, you know, eat, don't worry, is this a meat Friday? Like just follow your liturgical calendar. But second, when it's time to fast, like I understand that the the church is constantly kind of giving us those resources just to lean into. So whether it's like the morning prayer, the evening prayer, even if you could just do one, you know, just kind of always just lean into the church's liturgical life because it's there and how to live that in daily circumstances. I mean, just internalize it. Uh, you know, there's times that I'm driving and so listening to the radio or whatever, I'll just uh, spend time in silence mm-hmm. and just pray the Jesus prayer. And I'll even, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, you know, just kind of repeat it, but not like in a ritualistic, like, you know, how, can I get to 40 yeah. by the time I get to <laughs> my yeah. destination, but rather just even what, what does it mean to be for Jesus to be Lord? What does the name Jesus mean? Who is Christ? What is the Christ? What does it mean for God to have mercy? Like just have that kind of meditative prayer. And by the end of it, um, just kind of carrying that around me, you know, whenever I, I kind of get frustrated with the kids or something like, Oh, you know, you just spilled your juice all over. Like, and it's not this Zen crap meditation, right, right. you know, nonsense. It's, it's just leaning into the gifts, the treasury that the church already gives us, you yeah. know? So that's what I would say. Beautiful. Yeah. Cultivate a life of prayer. I like that a lot. Well, John, thanks so much for your time today. I really do appreciate yeah, it. You. Let's, let's do it again soon. Um, to my listeners, yeah. uh, I definitely encourage you to follow John on uh, Twitter. I think it's John a Monaco. Is that right? Yeah, 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 just okay. my name. <laughs> we'll make sure I got it. Got it correct. John A. Monaco on Twitter. Uh, like yeah. I said, less less active lately, but even uh, just yesterday, uh, we didn't talk about Latin Mass at all. But you did have a good little thread on the Latin Mass and yeah. and why it will um, why it will uh, survive. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, good stuff, uh, John. Really appreciate your work. Uh, my prayers for you in your uh, in your family journey, just as I am in my own as well. So I appreciate your prayers for. I was going to say me. my prayers for you yeah. as you welcome you welcome your newest. Thank you very much, man. Only a month away. It's crazy. Uh, it, it, I feel like the due date always creeps up on me. Definitely not my wife because she's the one who actually does all the hard work, <laughs> <Yeah>. especially prior <laughs> to delivery. But for me, I'm like, wow, it's already you. already almost here. <laughs> wow, it just crept up. You know, that really flew by, didn't it, babe? No, no, it did not. Um, yeah. So yeah, prayers for my, my wife and the little one, please would be, uh, would be greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to my listeners, thanks so much for, uh, for dialing into another episode. If you want to, um, reach out to John, feel free to just email me and I can, I can connect you with him. So John, we'll do this again soon. Uh, thanks so much. God bless. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Thank you. To my listeners. God bless you.